coming up on this episode? I don't trust people who don't have a limp. I don't trust people whose weaknesses are not also on display. Because this biblical principle, when I am weak, then I am strong, it's, it's really real. Saints are not perfect people. They are people who know they are perfectly loved in all their imperfections. You're listening to the Pursuit of Purpose podcast. Wisdom, stories, and advice from successful entrepreneurs and inspirational people. Hello, pursuers of purpose. This is Chris Kiefer. I'm the host. And today I am interviewing one of the leading experts, if not the expert, on the theology of the body. And if you're not quite sure what that is, then stick around and hear from Christopher West. On this episode, he shares more of his entrepreneurial journey. And he also talks about his music career, which was prior to the Christopher West that many of us know today. And he shares some of the key moments and people that got him to where he is today. One of the things that I really liked and was excited about from this particular episode was our discussion that I think is very relevant to Christian entrepreneurs or really anyone that is motivated or inspired of pursuing greatness in the world while also being very aware of a plan that God has for our lives. So Christopher says some excellent things in here regarding kind of blending the discernment of God's will for our life with the passion that we have to impact the world. And for those of you that do not know, you can go to chriskiefer.net to check out um, more articles, show notes on all the episodes that I've done. You can also check the show notes for all the links that um, are mentioned, our books, recommendations, other things that are mentioned in this episode. I make a real effort to include all of those so you can easily access those resources. Um, so check out the show notes below for that. And other than that, we are going to jump into this episode with Christopher West. Christopher, thank you so much for joining us today. Chris, it's a great joy for me to be with you and your audience. Um, so the majority of at least my thought for this episode was kind of talking about your career more as like an entrepreneur. We are going to, I mean, obviously, I don't think it's possible to have a conversation without touching on theology of the body. Right. But if you could at first just give like an overview of... Um, what theology of the body is, kind of your elevator pitch. Sure. And then um, how, I mean, in a, in a short summary, how you guys, like what, what it is that you do with theology of the body. Sure. So theology of the body formally is a collection of 129 talks that St. John Paul II delivered between 1979 and 1984. It is dense scholarship that unpacks for us what it means to be human. Why did God make us as bodily beings? And why as bodily beings are we male and female? So it's a, it's a dense theological tome, a biblical reflection on the meaning of our creation as male and female. What I do is I take that and I translate it into layman's terms so that, so that normal people can understand it. Here's, here's a working analogy. Imagine there is a virus that is spreading throughout the world, wreaking havoc and bringing civilization to its knees. Imagine also a cure for this virus has been discovered, but it is in an undigestible form for the, for the common person who needs it most. My mission, my job, my, my task is to make it digestible, put it in a form that normal people can understand, embrace, and live. And it really is, uh, it really is I think, that important. It's like finding a cure for, for cancer. That's awesome. And so the um, what I what I'm always interested in, when you see someone that is in an uh, an expert uh, role. I don't know if you even like to call yourself that, but from my perspective, looking at someone who has spent so much of their life on a particular topic, how I, I want to go back to like high school, um, undergrad, graduate school. What is it that, like, what's your educational background and what, like, when was the kind of turning point of, I don't want to say normal pursuits, because uh, this is not that this is unnormal, if that makes sense, but kind of like the light went off and all of a sudden you really started going more aggressively towards this 
um, theology of the body. So as far as the expert label, I mean, what do they say? If you put in 10,000 hours at something, you, you become mm -hmm. proficient. So, you know, I've put in my 10,000 hours by now and I'm, I'm proficient at what I do, but I, I'm always looking to grow. There's always more. I, I, I can look back 10 years ago and I can say, man, I'm a far better dancer now with my students than I was 10 years ago. And I hope 10 years from now, I can say the same. So I think you can definitely see the, the curve of incremental improval, uh, improve, improving uh, over like a 10 year span. So I've been at it for about 25 years. So I would say there's been like two and a half like major uh, shifts in the way I do what I do just by doing it so much. But to answer your question, you know, let's go back to high school years. In my high school and college years, I was pursuing a music career. I was a drummer in a band, uh, lots of bands. I did a lot of touring with bands. Then I be picked up a guitar in my early 20s and learned enough to become kind of a singer-songwriter. And I was putting out a solo album in 1993, the fall of 93, I, I was right at the end of a, a year and a half process of recording and I was starting to shop this album around to some labels when I discovered the theology of the body. I was just about to turn 24 years old. It was so it was September of 93 and I turned 24 in November of 93. And I started reading this theology of the body from John Paul II and my world took a, a very different directional turn. And I knew then I was going to spend the rest of my life studying this theology and sharing it with the world. And I, my educational background, I have an undergrad in anthropology from the University of Maryland. And I did my graduate work at the John Paul II Institute for Studies on Marriage and Family. When I discovered this theology of the body, I also discovered that the Pope had started a school to help uh, spread it and that there was a branch of this school under an hour away from where I lived. So I, I knew exactly where I was gonna go get, go for my graduate theology work. And I was in graduate school from 95 to 97. I got married my first semester of graduate school in November of 95. And I was hired by the Archdiocese of Denver after I graduated to run their, their marriage and family life office and revamp their marriage prep programs. And I was one of the first programs in the, in the United States to, to really bring the theology of the body to bear in a, a revamping of a marriage prep process. And that started getting some, some notice from some other dioceses. And I started being invited to speak here and there. My first book came out in 1999 towards the end of 99. And I don't know what it is about writing a book, but whether, whether you're worthy of it or not, when you become an author, um, somehow it, it just boosts your credibility in the eyes of others. So when that book came out, my speaking career really started to take off. And within a couple, uh, probably within a year and a half of that book coming out, um, I was in a position to say, well, if I accepted these speaking invitations that I'm now turning away because I can't do them because I have a full-time job, if I were to quit my full-time job with the archdiocese and accept these speaking events, I could probably make a living at it. So I made that leap in 2001. Uh, and then I moved back to Pennsylvania, my native Pennsylvania in 2003. And some colleagues and I here in Pennsylvania started the Theology of the Body Institute in 2004. And uh, I, I ran and operated that, got that up and going between 2004 and 2010. Then I started another organization called the Core Project, which was more of an outreach organization. Been running that for the last eight years. And uh, just this past August, these two organizations, Theology of the Body Institute and the Core Project, have merged and are one, under one roof now. So I am the president now of the Theology of the Body Institute and the core project. That's the nutshell version of the story. Awesome. Okay. And the I want to go back to, because this is, I feel like, the most interesting point in everybody. Like, 
Obviously, there's a ton of work that happens after you make a decision to do something. Yes. But oftentimes the friction feels the greatest, at least for me, in the moment of like decision where you were, I'm assuming if you're, if you're producing an album, you weren't just like singing songs to your family around a campfire. You know, you were very into this music world. Yes. Did you really just like hear about this? And then like a week later you were like, all right, I'm going to sign up for the, like, how, how did that, what was, who was influential in, um, in you making the jump to say, all right, I'm going to go at least study a little bit more about this. Yeah, I, I had the, the transition was pretty, pretty rapid, I must say. Um, so I was putting out that album in the fall of 93. Am I right on the time? Yes. Fall of 93. And I, I had a lot of naysay when I discovered this theology of the body, I was ready and willing to go study full-time and devote myself to it but i had a lot of naysayers i had people in my life who were discouraging me from following that path and i I won't get into all the details but uh, my family and i were living in a it's called a, a covenant community of of catholics who who took their faith very seriously and submitted themselves to a pretty rigorous spiritual formation and spiritual direction. And I got very bad spiritual direction here. I was told, <laughs> I, I, I haven't shared this story publicly, I don't think. I think this might be the first interview on which I'm sh- in which I'm sharing this. So this is, this is 93. I was told that I had a rebellious spirit and that this was, I, I had concocted this plan to go study this theology and be a teacher of it. And what I really needed to do was get a nine to five job and submit to a boss in order to work on my rebellious spirit. Mm, and advice. yeah, how about that for advice? <laughs> and I, I, I believe these people. I wanted to be, I wanted to do God's will. And, and I believe that these people kind of had a monopoly on understanding God's will for my life. That was a big mistake. And, and, but I wanted to do the right thing. I thought this was the right thing. So I went off and I got this nine to five job and, and I would read the theology of the body every day during my lunch break on this, when I had this nine to five job and, and I would get more and more inspired that this is what I was meant to do, but now I can't do it because I got this rebellious spirit and I got to learn how to submit to a boss and I'm trying to do that. But I remember this one day, um, this is about six months into the job. I'm sitting in my car during my lunch break, bent over in, in an absolute interior agony. And, and this job was sucking the life out of me. And what it was really doing was pulling me away from my real life's calling. Mm. And I remember going into my boss that afternoon and I thought because of this kind of kooky religious community I was part of, that was very imbalanced and very unhealthy in many, many ways. Uh, I thought that I was disobeying God by telling my boss I had to quit my job. But I went in that afternoon. I said, I'm done. I'm I'm out of here. I'm cleaning out my desk this afternoon. Goodbye. And as soon as I did that, peace just flooded my whole being. And I realized, wait a minute, that's a divine kind of peace. Like that's, I'm not making this up. I really am meant to do something with this theology and these people in this community have seriously misled me. And uh, I immediately applied to the graduate's degree program at the John Paul II Institute. And so this was now spring of 90, uh, spring of 90. Wait, I'm getting my dates wrong. I, I don't remember. I started studying in the spring, in the fall of 95. Okay. Um, so this, so I, maybe I'm off on though, some of my, my timing here. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. It was another year. I had to get some financial situation. This, oh, this is right. I had a full ride scholarship to the Institute that I turned down because the leaders of the community told me I wasn't supposed to do it. And oh, when so I re- you were going to go, they said, turn it down. You got a job instead, lost Correct. the scholarship. Okay. And then I then I reapplied and I didn't get the same scholarship. So I had to spend another year working to save up money and such. Uh, so I didn't end up going to school for another like a year and a half. 
um, <laughs> after that whole experience. But uh, yeah, that's I forgot about that little bit of it. So that's I'm that's super interesting. Down this is now I'm jumping down my list of questions because you just touched on something that I uh, and I'm assuming others, but I really struggle with, which is. Um, well, I should say two things. First of all, criticism. I love criticism. I'm like the world's biggest uh, addict of feedback and like, you know, tell me, tell me what's wrong. I'm going to fix this, whatever. Right. The other, the other side of criticism though, and, or feedback in general is that you have to be good at discerning, uh, what is valuable in any criticism that you yes. receive. Right. Yes. So how in, especially for, uh, it's like a really impactful decision like that. And sometimes it's not even, I would say if you're, if you take yourself out of that particular scenario, but you're receiving feedback, um, which may or, you know, you can say it's criticism or not, whatever, but it's feedback on advice of what you should do. Yes. How do you, especially when it's coming from a person of, uh, religious uh or seemingly influence. religious yep. influence you know how do you determine this is good advice and it's coming like it's it's god speaking through them versus uh like what i don't know how how do you do that cuz i have a whole list of my own examples and actually the one specific one is when natalie and i were di- discerning marriage i was like i don't know i think god's calling me to be a priest and she was like why in the world would he be telling you to be a priest if it's so blatantly clear that he's telling me that we should be married? And so we're, you know, like that, that, because uh, we were both praying about this very, very intently. Yes, yes. But we're, we're like, I was the one that was probably not aligned in my tuning to hear the correct message in that. You know what I mean? Or it could be, I'll just throw this out as a possibility, it could be that you needed to go through that one last step of discernment to come back around to see that you were called to marriage. Right, right. And, and you know, and God always writes straight, straight with crooked lines, as the saying goes. And I, I have looked back and thought, huh, if I had gone to graduate school in 93 instead of 95, I wonder how my life would have unfolded. So... Right. You know, I, I went to graduate school two years after I wanted to go and and I ended up meeting people that were very influential and I'm still really good friends with these people that I never would have met. And they've been part of my 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 ministry and career in very instrumental and very important ways. So who knows? You know, you, you can't really God. God will use anything we give him. Um, but I can speak from my own experience when this when these people that I trusted told me I shouldn't go to graduate school. I know when I followed what they thought I should do, the life got sucked out of me. And, and that was undeniable. And when I mm. got back on track, it's like I had air back in my lungs. And there is a mm. deep abiding peace about it. And I, I think you need to learn to read those signals. Read, right, those, right. read that interior movement of your heart. Uh, I think is very, very important to read that. And learning to read that for me made it made it absolutely clear what I was supposed to do. And I and it, for me, it was just like I knew what the next step was. The next right. step was I need to go get this degree. I need to go study. I, I had a, a long-term vision for where this was going to go. I wanted to write books. I wanted to teach. I wanted to travel the world and give seminars. Um, all of that came to me in kind of a, a, a vision of my future when I first read The Theology of the Body in 1993. I thought, that's what I'm going to do with my life. This is how, this, that's what's going to happen. I'm going to teach this. I'm going to travel the world. I'm going to write books. I'm going to set up maybe a theological institute someday and teach courses. And people are going to come take these courses. And that all has unfolded. But at the time, I knew the next step is I need to study. I need to get my credentials under my belt. I need to take this next step and get this degree. And I remember the final semester of my graduate school. So this is spring of 1997. My wife is pregnant with our first child. Uh, She had been supporting us through graduate school. She was working as a nurse in, in a hospital. And... I realized, oh my gosh, I got like three months before I graduate and I got to figure out what the next step is. 
And I thought, okay, I, I know what I want to do long-term, but I need to get some, some real, I need to learn how the church works. I need to learn, uh, I, I need to be under some, some real leaders that I can learn from and trust. And I thought, okay, I should really probably work in a diocese uh, in a marriage and family life office where I would really learn kind of the behind the scenes things of the church that I need to know and understand and how parish life works and how diocesan life works. And man, it would be great if I could work with a great bishop who could be a mentor. And this is what I thought. I, I remember it very clearly. I thought, well, if I could pick anywhere in the country to, to work in a diocese, where would it be? And I thought, I love to ski. I thought, well, it can't hurt to call the Archdiocese of Denver and see if anything's available. That would put me right near the Rocky Mountains. I could do lots of skiing. And I picked up the phone and out of the blue, I called information and uh, I, I got the number for the Archdiocese of Denver. I called them up. I said, hi, my name is Christopher West. I'm about to graduate from the John Paul II Institute. And uh, I'm just wondering if there's anything available in the marriage and family life department. And please hold. Okay. And they sent me to some guy's voicemail and I left a message. I said who I was. I'm about to graduate from the JP2 Institute. Is there anything available in the marriage and family life office? And I thought, oh, well, I'll probably never hear back, but at least I tried. And I got a call back that afternoon from this guy's secretary. And he said, my boss is in a meeting today, but he will, he will call you tomorrow. He really wants to talk to you. And I thought, fascinating, very interesting. I wonder what's going on here. So he calls me up the next day. And mind you, I had no idea about the leanings of the diocese. I don't know if they would have had any you know, inclination to hire someone who's getting a degree from the John Paul II Institute or not. Right. Uh, but I get this call back and his name was Bill Beckman. And he said, hi, my name's Bill. Uh, the meeting I was in yesterday when you called, this is very interesting because I was with the Budget and Finance Committee securing a salary for a brand new position, Director of the Marriage and Family Life Office. And I myself am a graduate from the John Paul II Institute, and I only want to hire somebody who has that degree. <laughs> and awesome. I, I re, we, we talked for probably an hour and we were you know, telling stories about our favorite professors at the John Paul II Institute. And, and I knew, I knew this was just God lining this up. And I hung up the phone and I said to Wendy, uh, honey, it looks like we're moving to Denver. And they flew us out for an interview. And it was kind of a formality because we all knew that it was kind of going to work out. And I got offered the job. And the day I landed in Denver for the interview, the headlines in the newspaper for the diocesan newspaper was Pope John Paul II chooses new Archbishop of Denver, Charles J. Shapu. And oh. Shapu became my mentor, one of my mentors out in Denver. He and I arrived in the Archdiocese of Denver right at the same time. He was instrumental in just dealing with helping me through some or hard knocks at the beginning and learning lessons and cutting my teeth. And he started opening doors for me literally around the world. He took me with him on a trip to Australia, I'll never forget. He had me write speeches for him on marriage and family issues. Uh, it was, it could not have been a better preparation for the work that I, I do now. And I remember when I finally left Denver in 2003, and Archbishop Shapu was sad to see me go, and he was trying to you know, is there any chance you would stay? And I said, Archbishop, one day, mark my words, you're going to be the Archbishop of Philadelphia. So you're going to be right next door to me in Pennsylvania sometime soon. And he said, nah, it's never going to happen. And uh, when he was appointed Archbishop of Philadelphia, uh, he was a very busy man for many months when he came to Philadelphia. But eventually he and I had lunch. And I said, remember what I said to you? Remember I told you one day you'd be the Archbishop of Philadelphia? And we just smiled and laughed about it. But yeah, so that all of that, um, that job in the Archdiocese of Denver was absolutely critical for me. It helped me tremendously to learn. It, it, it gave me opportunities to speak and teach courses relentlessly. And I really, really, really uh, cut my teeth in those years in Denver. I'm so grateful to God for that. And so grateful so to Archbishop Chapu for that. Yeah, that's that. That's just absolutely crazy. The timing and everything is just divinely 
um, inspired that. So the next, the next kind of question in, in discerning, um, you know, when you're, when you are on a calling or on a mission, um, something that I, I fascinate, um, or what's the word, something that I dwell on or think about a lot in books that I've read of successful people. Um, there's supposedly like Walt Disney, um, when he was trying to get financing for Disney world, keep in mind, he had already built Disneyland, but the idea for Disney world, he was trying to get that financed. Supposedly he was rejected 302 times. And then JK Rowling, you know, I don't know if you've seen these like stats before, but JK Rowling was denied 12 times by different, or by 12 different publishers, Stephen Hawking 30 times. Like, so there's all these people that have a passion or something that they're pursuing and they are continually faced with rejection um, or failure or whatever. And again, this is another example of people getting feedback, but I'm, what I am, fascinated or interested in is first of all were there a number of times um after you're already on because that's the other thing i feel like you've already talked about in the beginning there were some difficulties but once you're like okay i'm off to the races like i'm on the path and then what instances did you encounter rejection or resistance and how do you know uh, to know I'm supposed to continue forward. I'm supposed to ask another publisher. I'm supposed yep. to go through and, and keep pushing and not. And then when is it a sign that God's saying, no, 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 go the other way instead of being an idiot or, you know, um, whatever that word is, the definition of insanity is, you know, pounding your head into the same wall. Yes. Well, I would say that many people would say Walt Disney was insane, but you know, after 302 times he, he, he did it, you know? Chris, those are great, great questions, and I really, I really appreciate the opportunity just to reflect back on the stuff for my own sake. You know, it's 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 a it's an amazing thing to look back and see the doors that were open for me, the people who played instrumental roles, um, and I, I just want to you know tip my hat to a couple people here. Um, meeting a, a guy named Steve Habison in the the late 90s he was a catholic businessman he was running an organization called the gift foundation and he spotted that i had a a gift uh to to make this dense theology accessible and he 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 uh distributed my first tape series and that was very instrumental in in kind of just getting my name out there and and then in 2001 when i was at that point earlier where i shared with you I, I went from my full-time job and I started accepting the, all these speaking invitations. It was a big leap to do that. I mean, I, I had a salary that that was paying the bills and I was accepting about one speaking invitation a month. That's all I could handle in addition to my full-time job. And I, I was doing the math, but it was a big risk. And I had I had two kids at the time and we were hoping for more children. And, and it was a risk to take. And Steve Habison, this Catholic businessman came alongside me and he said, Christopher, what if, what if you quit your full-time job for the Archdiocese of Denver, you accept all the speaking invitations and, uh, you know, you travel maybe, you know, what's, whatever you can do, maybe three, three times a month. And you give me all the, the stipends. In other words, the speaking fees, you give them to me, I'll pay you a salary. And if at the end of the year you owe me money, I'll eat it. And if I owe you money, I'll pay you a bonus. So it was like a no brainer. How can you turn that down? So he took away all the risk for me to make that leap into a full-time speaking and teaching career. So I just want to tip my hat to people like that, like uh, Archbishop Shapu, Fran Mayer. Uh, he, he worked in the Archdiocese of Denver with Shapu. He opened doors for me. Matthew Pinto of Ascension Press. He opened doors for me. Um, but in terms of the naysayers, the naysayers. Yeah, I had naysayers from the start. I had critics from the start. I had people tell me right from the start, you'll never be able to do this. I remember I was in graduate school and I was sharing my vision with where I wanted to go with this with lots of people. And uh, I remember this one woman in particular, she said, oh, you'll never be able to do that. My husband tried to go into ministry and he had to start a lawn mowing business on the (laughs) side. And it's been a real hardship for our family. And I remember just a determination 
no, I'm not going to have to start a lawn mowing business on the side. I commend anybody who does that because you have to, but I'm going to make this work. Like it was a zeal. It was a passion. It was a determination that nobody could tell me I wasn't going to find a way to do this. Is that just hard headedness, stubbornness, or, or, or is it, was I following a mission and a calling? Um, maybe a little bit of both. Um, maybe you need a little bit of both to um, to make it work. Uh, I, 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 but, but also, yeah, uh, there have been some real, real hardships. There have been times where I was so ready to quit that that I, I wasn't sure I was ever going to return. I, I took a six month sabbatical in 2010 because I, I, had, I was going through a really difficult personal time, uh, time in my marriage, time in my personal life, time in my ministry. At this point, I had been on the road full time for, for about 10 years, and it took its toll on me. I was making bad decisions. Uh, I, yeah, things were just rough. And I had gone through a real difficult time of public criticism around that same time as well. And I just needed time away. I needed time off the road. I needed time just to be a husband and a father. And I took six months off, a six-month sabbatical, desperately needed. And I wasn't even sure if I was going to return. It was so bad. I was in such a slump and in such a painful place. And I felt, in some ways, my, my own broken humanity was coming out. It was on display. And I was supposed to be the theology of the body guy. And people were looking to me for answers. and Oh my gosh, I, <laughs> I, anybody involved in ministry, if we do not learn the principle that St. Paul had to learn, and every apostle has to learn, everybody who preaches the gospel, every disciple has to learn, it's this, when I am weak, then I am strong. I learned the hard way that I had been wearing a lot of masks in my life and, and trying to, to impress people and trying to um, not show my weak spots because I thought it it took away my credibility. And during my six-month sabbatical, I was getting very intense care from my spiritual director, and I was experiencing a really radical paradigm shift in the way I lived and understood my marriage, understood my personal life, and understood my ministry. And I'll just say it the way he said it. And it was a game changer for me. He said, Christopher, you think a saint is someone who has his shit together. My, my, this is a Catholic priest who's a real straight talker, and I love <laughs> that he just put it that way to me. He said, Christopher, you think a saint is someone who has his shit together. No, no, you got it all wrong. A saint, he said, is someone who has all of his or her shit open to the merciful love of God to the merciful love of God. And that was a game changer. That, that radically changed the way I do ministry. That radically changed the way I live my marriage. It radically changed the way I, I approach my whole spiritual life. Like, I don't have to impress anybody. I don't have to impress my students. I don't have to impress my wife. I don't have to impress my kids. I don't have to impress my publishers. I need to expose my weakness. And if my weakness and my SHIT is open to God's merciful love, that becomes a channel through which God's strength, through which God's mercy, through which God's love reaches other people. So I would say if you look at the first 10 years of my, my work, you might see a pattern of me trying to, to prove myself, me trying to you know, show my students that look at me, look at this great theology I know. And, you know, it's not like the theology was wrong, but, but my attitude was off in many ways. Whereas the last 10 years has been much more about teaching people how to walk the way of opening our brokenness and our poverty to God's riches and strength. So that's been a major, major game changer for me in the way I approach my work. And those game-changing moments came through facing, honestly, the criticism I was receiving, some of which was well-founded. A lot of it was not well-founded, but 
Some of it was. Um, and looking at difficulties in my marriage and in my personal life and and some some real crap that I had to deal with in my own life. I mean, this is not to pat myself on the back or or boast in my myself or anything, but it's just a fact. I have been sexually faithful to my wife all these years, thanks be to God, but there were there were areas where I was emotionally unfaithful. There were situations I was in where I was getting accolades and such and attention from women that was was inappropriate on an emotional level. And I had to look at all this stuff. And it was, it, my life was a, in many ways, it was a mess because of, of not attending to my spiritual life in a way that I really needed to. Mm. And that reckoning that I had to deal with on my sabbatical in 2010 was critical. I would not still be in ministry if that had not happened. I would have long since quit or the whole thing would have collapsed because I wasn't looking honestly at my my broken humanity. Um, and I don't know if I'm exactly answering your question, but here's here. I'll just I'll sum it up as follows. This is how one guy put it to me that I, I thought it was really good. I don't trust people who don't have a limp. And by that, he was saying. I don't trust people who think they have it all together. I don't trust people whose weaknesses are not also on display. Because this biblical principle, when I am weak, then I am strong. It's really real. It's, it's really real. Anybody who is out there trying to convince the rest of the world that I have my act together, I don't trust these people. Um, there's something duplicitous about it because every human being is a mixture of wheat and weeds. Uh, we have gifts to share for sure, but but we have a lot of weakness and brokenness too. And and that anybody who's pretending they're they're, if I may use the Polish, anybody who's pretending their shitsky doesn't smell. Um, <laughs> that I don't trust these people. I don't trust them. Uh, right, right. saints saints are not perfect people they are people who know they are perfectly loved in all their imperfections and and i'm still learning these lessons but it has made a world of world of difference uh in terms of being an authentic messenger of the gospel to really come to terms or or more deeply come to terms with my own frail, fragile, weak humanity. Hmm. That's awesome. And I, I don't even remember the specific question that I did ask, so I wouldn't worry about that. But the thing that I struggle with and think about frequently is um, you hear of all the success, like the quotes from all these successful people that, you know, to be fair, they're probably not Christian, some of them. So others, I would say, they maybe lead very Christian lives, um, but they still are not necessarily, you know, in tune spiritually. So this this one quote is from a professor named Randy Pausch. He had cancer, and uh, he gave a famous talk a while ago called "The Last Lecture," and um, it would I think it's on like TED Talk or something like that. Mm -hmm. But his quote in it was the the brick walls are there for a reason. The brick walls are not there to keep us out. The brick walls are there to give us a chance to show how badly we want something because the brick walls are there to stop the people who don't want it badly enough. They're there to stop the other people. Beautiful. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. And I do too. But then the thing that I struggle with is like, so the, like with what you're describing and talking about the, the thing that I, uh, wrestle with in my mind is are like do like saints obviously encounter brick walls absolutely but how do you know like the one thing i don't necessarily like about this quote if i'm really picky about it and this is just from spending too much time pondering this particular thing and that is show people how badly we want something and the question is is what i want 
what God wants for me because potentially, or I think that people are capable of amazing things. Um, and I wonder if something like Disneyland is that like, I don't know if, I don't even know if I can explain this properly, but if I am, if I am pursuing the life that I want, I can achieve greatness for sure. I believe that about myself. Yes. The thing that scares me is that I would achieve greatness in my own selfish desires and not in what God wants for me. But how do I know when this is just a wall that is supposed to either be purifying me or strengthening me for the road ahead that God has planned? Or is this a wall saying, go the other way and like, that's what God is telling me, but I believe, and I guess the thing that I do believe is that even when God is telling me go the other way, there are people in the world that have the ability, because God has given them this, to persist past that and still get what they want in life. Or is it that God would eventually just hit you with another brick wall and ultimately, like, tear you down? You know what I mean? Like, was Disney World supposed to exist? Was Apple supposed to exist? in God's plan or has God taken that and then made it good? In yeah. Either, those in are all those great questions, all great questions. And, and we cannot trivialize the, the journey of discerning the answers to these questions by claiming, we'll do this though. Here's the one, two, three step for discerning God's will perfectly. It mm. doesn't go that way, right? It, it, it comes, the discernment comes through the bumps and the bruises of, of just engaging life and figuring it out. And the brick wall thing, what I what I like about that, I'm, I like that brick wall thing in as much as one can be clear that this is what I'm meant to be doing. Put it this way. I It is very clear to me, and I, 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 I can't get into all of why it's so clear to me because it's also so personal to me, things that have been revealed in my life. I'll just put it that way. Things that have been revealed in my life have made it very clear to me that I did not choose this path for myself, but God has chosen it for me, right? And there's that scripture verse, you didn't choose me, I chose you, right? And when we can, when we live from that conviction that I didn't make this up, and, and that's a, to get there takes a long time. But if we have, if we have, if we have arrived at a place where we can say, I know I'm called to X, Y, and Z, then the brick walls we run into, we know these are things that God is allowing for our own purification along the journey, not to cause us to stop. In fact, if we are convicted that this is a, call, a divine calling on my life to do X, Y, and Z, then, then if there are thoughts of I shouldn't do it or or get me out of this because I can't handle it anymore, well, whose message is that? That that message would be coming from another force, not a happy one, not a pretty one, not a not a light bearing one, but a very dark one. Right? There, there's another force operating on us too that doesn't want us to fulfill God's will for our lives. And every every saint. Um, and that's what we're all called to be, by the way, right? We're all called to be saints. If, if we're not striving for sanctity, if we are not striving to be the best we can be, which is a saint in the right sense of the word, not holier than now, but it means we have all our junk open to the merciful love of God and we're dealing day to day with our broken humanity and letting God's mercy in ever more deeply. You know, that's my understanding of a saint. Um, if we're not striving for that, we're not striving for the for greatness, right? And that desire we have for greatness is great. It's really, really good. We should want to strive for that. I want to strive for that. Um, but, but, but yes, the the underlying question is: What I am pursuing God's will, or is it not? That's a biggie. But I want to tell a story here that also I think Chris shines a very important light on it. This is a story a guy told me fifteen years ago or more, probably, yeah, probably closer to 20 years ago. I was giving a talk in Washington state and I stayed at this guy's house. He brought me out. Uh, he was a, he's a married man. He's got several kids and we stayed up late drinking a couple beers and just talking about the state of the world, the state of the church, state of his marriage, state of my marriage. I was, you know, married maybe four or five years at the time. And he had, he was probably married 15 or more years at the time. 
And he said to me flat out, he said, Christopher, I know God was calling me to be a priest. And I, I was kind of surprised at that. I said, what do, what do you mean? He said, it was very clear to me in my prayer life, in my discernment, that God wanted me to be a priest. And I said, well, what happened? And he said, I said to God, thank you, God, for the vote of confidence, but I want to be married. And I fell in love and I married this wonderful woman and he pointed to the pictures on the wall and he said, look at all these kids, look at all these beautiful kids I have. You don't think God has blessed me? You don't think God has blessed my decision? And it was, it was a remarkable demonstration to me that God, how God honors our freedom. And we're, he didn't choose between good and evil, right? It was not a choice of good, good on the one hand or evil on the other. God respects our freedom, and, and he chose marriage, even though he really felt a calling to be a priest. And, and God has honored that. And I, I, I love that story for a lot of reasons, because sometimes we can have this idea that God has this one set course for my life, and if I don't follow it, I've screwed everything up. I don't think that's the truth. I think God has a plan for our lives, but he... He also has wide margins and he respects our freedom and he honors our freedom. And so long as we're not choosing something objectively wrong or objectively evil, we, we can't really screw it up because God's going to honor what we offer him. And you know what he's, else he's going to do? He's even going to use our screw ups for a greater glory because he promises to bring good for all those who love him, right? Um, he's going to bring good out of it, even if we've screwed up. And guess what? Even if we do choose evil, when we open that up to his mercy, he promises to bring about even a greater good from that too. So, so God works for the good, everything for those who love him, right? Even mm -hmm. our yeah. sin, when we open that up to him, his mercy is so awesome that he uses even that for his greater glory. I look back on, on things that I was screwing up in my life and screwing up in my ministry and mistakes that I had made and sins that I've committed, ways I've hurt my wife, waves. I, I mean, I can't even go down the list. Uh, there's just too many things to, 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 if I were really listed out, all my screw-ups. But the goodness, the, the good news of the gospel is that we can open up all our screw-ups to God's mercy and trust that he's going to bring about a greater good from all of that than had we not screwed up. Now, does that mean we should go out there and screw up intentionally because God told us he'll bring about a greater good? St. Paul asks that question. He says, your condemnation is deserved if you think you can choose evil trusting that God's going to bring good out of it. Your condemnation is deserved. But if mm. in our goodwill attempts to follow God's plan for our lives, if we screw up, we can trust he's going to, he's going to bring a good out of it. Otherwise, otherwise, if we don't, if we live with this idea that every single decision is a life and death decision, well, oh my gosh, then I'll be conflicted as, as to whether I'm going to have Cheerios or cornflakes for breakfast and I'm going to think eternity <laughs> is hinging on it. And I just can't live that way. Right. That's fantastic. That was brilliant. So what's next for you? You are, you've been doing a lot of stuff. You mentioned you're kind of in this, uh, you just merged Theology of the Body Institute and Core Project. Do you have any projects or books, courses, things that are you're really excited about that are either in progress or coming out soon? Yeah, I, I am really excited about this new role I have at the Theology of the Body Institute. And my analogy here, I always tend towards analogies, <laughs> but I feel like I found a really excellent fitting pair of shoes. Like you're really excited. Oh, these fit awesomely, but they're also kind of stiff and you need to wear them in to, to get the, the leather to, to loosen up. So I feel like I found a great pair of shoes. They fit really well. I feel very much at home as the president of the Theology of Body Institute, but I, I got to keep walking in these shoes to get them really comfortable. And we're only six months in, under six months into this transition. And my hopes and dreams for the future 
Uh, yeah, I have a lot. We're gonna, we really wanna increase our, our student body. We have had about, since we first launched these courses in 2004, we've had about 5,500 students come through our courses, which is, is excellent. I mean, I'm, I'm thrilled yeah, about that, but, but I would love to, in the next 10 years, or 14, yeah, what's it been? 14, 15 years. In the next 15 years, I'd like to say we've had another 10,000 uh, come through our courses. I'd like to double our numbers. I'd like to recruit more faculty. Uh, and I'd like to start branching out where we have conversations with uh, people around the world, people in Italy, people in Spain, people in Mexico, people in Australia that, that are, are, we're in a beginning conversation with about and opening, opening up branches of the Institute around the world. Uh, we'll see where that goes. But in order for that to happen, you know, a lot of, a lot of just initial steps have to unfold. And, and if you, I've certainly learned this running organizations over the years that you got to learn how to crawl, you got to learn how to stand, you got to learn how to walk before you learn how to run. And I've had, um, attempts at building certain projects and organizations collapse because we tried to run before we were able even to stand or walk. And um, those have been some, some hard, hard lessons to learn over the years. But patience and building one step at a time, crawl, walk, run, that's the name of the game. Um, sometimes my zeal can turn into an angst and a discontent. And as I've, I've learned um, to, to really expose whatever's going on in my heart in spiritual direction and getting good counsel from people I trust, I love my, my spiritual director said this to me recently. He says, Christopher, angst in your ministry is like the lustified version of your zeal. You know, our, our desire for sexual union, our desire to love our wives can can get lustified and become something self-seeking and selfish. But all of our desires can get lustified. And so I have this desire to spread theology of the body around the world. That's a very good desire, right? But that doesn't mean anything I do to try to fulfill that desire is good. You know, I have a desire to make love to my wife. That's a good desire, but that doesn't mean anything I do to try to fulfill that desire is good. Right? right. If I'm manipulative of my wife or something, that is not good. So my zeal to spread this message is good. But the way I go about it is also very important. So I have to I have to let my my zeal also be purified. And and I have to let the certain setbacks that come into to my life, the you know, if if put it this way, if I had had my dreams come true. Uh, I might have a, a, a global organization that has 10 times as many people who've been exposed to this message or 100 times as many people who've been exposed to this message. But my, my, my eternal salvation would probably be at stake because my pride and my ego would have been served rather than my humility and my salvation. Hmm. So, so the Lord has his ways of giving us these... Um, these loving smackdowns where we, we, we have to face certain struggles, difficulties, setbacks that are very, very difficult for, for somebody who is zealous like me. But I can look back at those setbacks and I can say, thank you, God, I needed that. I needed it for my own humility. I needed it for my own salvation. I needed it for my own growth. Um, because we're not, I'm not just in this for other people's salvation. That's certainly a motivating factor. But the Lord called Peter and Paul and all the apostles all, throughout all of human history. He calls people to be an evangelist, not just for the salvation of others, but that becomes our own path of salvation too. So we need to be very attentive and aware to where our otherwise good desires can also become something where we're just serving our ego or we're just serving our own sense of what success is. Uh, I read a book recently that I'd highly, highly recommend called The Way of Imperfection. 
And this priest who wrote this book said the number one temptation that assails anyone involved in ministry, the number one temptation is that you your, your good motivations that started off wanting to serve the Lord and wanting to bless other people, the biggest temptation you will face is that those desires can become self-serving where we're in it for our own success, so to speak, or we're in it for our own ego needs, or we're in it for whatever, but but it doesn't become, the motiva- motivation is no longer love, the motivation is somehow self-love or self-promotion. And and I've had to battle with that as as anybody has to battle with those kind of things. So it has taught me to accept those brick walls to accept those roadblocks, to accept those setbacks as blessings, as opportunities to really grow in holiness and reassess where are my motivations. Uh, And those are hard lessons, but those are necessary lessons. Yep, absolutely. I think if I reflect reflect on my own life, I think the uh, a lot of the it's easier to accept things as blessings when you don't, uh, when you're patient and you don't have the, uh, like the ticking clock fear, I guess. I don't know if that makes sense, but sure, I guess sure it makes sense. a lot of times in building a business or whatever, my fear is always like, Oh crap. I only have, you know, I only have 80 years left. Like I got to hurry. I don't have, you know, whatever it is. Like I can't waste two years going back to school. Are you kidding me? Like we got to do this now. And like, but if you have patience in the process and being present and all that, then a lot of the, uh, perceived, you know, the roadblocks and the brick walls, they can actually become kind of fun and an opportunity to get stronger Yes. Uh, as opposed to just trying to figure out how to go around them or avoid all of them. Think of think of the parable of the seed, the sower and the seed, and the, the different kinds of ground that the seed falls on, and the rocky ground that that something grows, but it doesn't have deep roots. You know, if you look at a towering tree that took a hundred years to become this massively beautiful tree, we know that the structure of that tree, the thing that makes it stand so tall and be so strong, isn't even visible. It's under the ground. And, and this is why anyone, especially, especially if you are a believer and you want your business to, to glorify God and not just pad your bank account, but really give glory to God and honor God and the way you run your business, you want it to honor God. You want it to bless your employees, not just with a paycheck, but with a job and a career that actually allows them to live a dignified human life. The only way that's possible, the only way that's possible is if your number one priority in life is holiness. And that means the majority of what makes your business successful is underground, like the roots of a tree. They People don't even see it. Uh, John of the Cross said, and I, I share this with all my students, um, when, we, when I teach the um, level three course at the Institute, it's called Theology of the Body and the New Evangelization. And so this is where I'm really kind of training my students to go out there and spread this. Uh, I I quote from John of the Cross, who says uh, something like, if you would spend double the time in prayer that you think you should be spending, your work for God would be far more fruitful than it is with with less time in prayer. The, the, The point being, our prayer life is essential for our holiness. And our holiness is essential for honest success, for honest success. Investing, I mean, I, I, minimum, minimum for me every day is, is an hour in prayer, minimum. Sometimes it's two hours a day. But if, if I'm not getting anywhere from an hour to two hours a day in prayer, worked into my daily life, just part of my work day, 
I'm in trouble. I'm not saying everybody has to do that, but I know with the responsibilities on my shoulders, with the seriousness of this work that I do and the, the attacks that come against it, uh, you know, there are some real strong forces that do not want this theology of the body to get out around the world. If I, if my priority every day is not an hour to two hours in prayer, and that's including spiritual reading and, and, reading of scripture, and then spending time really trying to open my heart to God and listen to him and what he's doing, I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble. And if I don't have a prayer team at every course I'm teaching who are interceding for me and the students, I'm in trouble. Because the the battle we're really fighting is, is not against flesh and blood. The battle we're fighting is a spiritual battle. And so we need spiritual tools to win that spiritual battle. Uh, and I think those those tools brought wedded with good business skills. You know, I, I have I have a whole section on my in my library right now uh, that I'm looking at right now of all my business books and books for entrepreneurs, and uh, that's that's really important. But I have far more books on learning how to pray and learning how to listen to God and and learning how to grow in a life of holiness than I do books on business and being an entrepreneur. But the two really must be brought together. And, and to do that is a fine art that uh, I think we are called to in a particular way as laymen who are, who are doing ministry. Do you have any other book recommendations besides The Way of Imperfection that you'd recommend? I would recommend all of Father Jacques Philippe's books. Philippe, P-H-I-L-L-I-P-P-E, I believe is how you spell it. He's written seven or eight little pocket-sized books on the spiritual life. And I, I call it uh, mysticism for dummies. They're all excellent. You might want to start with um, thirsting for prayer, or I think it's called the way of freedom is another one. Anyway, just look at, put his book, put his, uh, put his name into Amazon and, and you'll get all his books. And, and I'd go one by one through them all. Okay. Favorite movie of all time. Favorite movie of all time? Well, I'm looking at the cover of it right now on my bookshelf. That would have to be Braveheart. Braveheart, that's classic. Um, and the last one, just how how do you recommend that people get in touch with you if they want to say thanks or have a question? What's the best method of contact? Yeah, well, if you have questions, I would submit them to my podcast because there's a, a new podcast my wife and I just launched called Ask Christopher West, and it's a great way to address questions to me, and we can ask or we can answer them through the podcast. Um, and you can go to askchristopherwest.com to learn more about the podcast or go wherever you listen to podcasts and just type in Ask Christopher West. You can also, I would invite you to take one of my free courses just as an introduction, if you want to learn more about this theology of the body, I offer a free little mini introductory course into some of these themes. The course is called What Do You Want? And you can get it at uh, Ask Christopher West forward, forward slash free course. Okay. Nice. Yeah, I will. Um, oh, AskChristopherWest.com. AskChristopherWest.com forward slash free course. Gotcha. Okay. I will uh, link this up in the. Um show notes for anyone listening the all those various things that you mentioned um and other oh one this is just coming from this is my one request how is it or are you in the works or is it um going to happen soon that more of your written books are going to be audio books that we can purchase on audible or apple books or something like that if you say a prayer that I have uh, a staff that can help me accomplish that, because I would very much like to, um, it's it's not on the front burner because I have so many other things I need to attend to, but it is it is in the kitchen. We are aware of the need and we are going to be working on it. Because I do have, we purchased the Theology of the Body for Beginners book. Yes. And Natalie's like three quarters of the way through it. I'm on page eight and I started a week ago. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's not, it's just like, it's my, I think it's ADD and just like a lack of ability to focus, but I can blow through audiobooks in like three days uh, just because I don't know, that's just how I operate. So I'm still, I'm going to try, I'm doing my best and I'm really going to commit myself, but it's just like, it's like, 
pulling teeth and uh yeah it's just painful well eight but, pa anyways. eight pages in a week that's about a, a page a day so you, you only <laughs> have like 190 right? days left to finish my book right that's not too bad <laughs> just patience that's the key um i awesome. would listen well, you know i do have a lot of audio um talks you know of my you know in my books and my live presentations they kind of overlap quite a bit so if you prefer to mm -hmm. listen then uh you should you should get my audio talks where are those uh or where can we find those you can get uh, you just type me into youtube um or anywhere you listen to yeah youtube go to youtube just type in christopher s on youtube and start listening there gotcha all right all right well thank you so much for uh taking the time to do this uh, you're welcome chris i really enjoyed it. the conversation this was a different interview than uh, anyone i've ever done in my life and i've done many so i, I enjoyed it and there it is folks thank you so much for tuning in uh, as always, check out chriskiefer.net. Uh, look in the show notes for all of the relevant links and other books, articles, recommendations that were mentioned in this podcast and other podcasts. And if you have any questions or would like to engage on the social level, you can find me on Instagram. I share quotes and other little clips from interviews that I'm doing. So thank you so much for your attention, and we will see you next time. You're listening to the Pursuit of Purpose podcast. Wisdom, stories, and advice from successful entrepreneurs and inspirational people.